That's right. It is James chapter 1 today. Matt was uh, telling me earlier that he was, he was kind of in and out of the beginning of the service last week, and he said, yeah, I, I walked out, I had to take care of something, and I came back and you were preaching from James 3, and I'm not sure how that happened, but um, moved really fast through the book. Uh, yeah, we're going we're gonna to back up to James chapter 1. We did start in the middle last week, which I know was a little odd, but I do believe that James really crescendos to the center of the book and then works away from James 3, verses 13 through 18. And what we saw last week, just by way of introduction and reminder, is that James presents us with two types of wisdom. There is wisdom from the world, and there is wisdom from above. If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, don't boast as if you know the truth, because that wisdom is earthly and unspiritual and demonic, and it leads to disorder in every vile practice. So that's James's description of wisdom that comes from the world. Wisdom that comes from above, on the other hand, is pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, good fruits, impartial, and sincere. And those who sow wisdom from above reap a harvest of peace. So James, like his older brother, Jesus, and if you weren't here last week, I'll just tell you, uh, James is the half-brother of our Lord. James is interested in fruit. Good trees produce bad fruit. Uh, good fruit. <laughs> I say some things. I know I say some things. Apparently last week I said that James wants you to do evil, and I meant Satan wants you to do evil. So it's really important that you hear what I mean, not what I say. Um, and I'll try to like back up and correct those things as I find out about them. Uh, James is interested in fruit. Good trees produce good fruit. Bad trees produce bad fruit. Wisdom from above produces the fruit of peace. Wisdom from below produces disorder and every vile practice. Okay, and before we move on, because it's important, I just want to remind you there is no middle path of wisdom. I do think that many today are like, well, I don't want to participate in anything that's demonic. I don't want to be a part of the wisdom of the world, but I'm going to try to find a, a middle ground because I don't want to be like one of those crazy, you know, Christians either. There's, there's kind of a like a middle path, um, and I can, I can strike the balance, and there really is no neutral wisdom. Uh, our attempts at finding the middle more often than not, end up being a way, I think, of, of masking that worldly wisdom to make it seem less demonic. And eventually, the fruit will appear. Um, perhaps it occurred to you this week, if you were thinking about these things, and I hope you are thinking about these things. I had several questions this week. So what happens then when God's people live according to God's wisdom, but because of circumstances outside of themselves— they are unable to live in peace. So there's plenty of conflict in this world. There's conflict in homes, in churches, in communities. Persecution is a real thing. It's not peaceful all the time for Christians. Maybe you've tried to stand up for what's right at school and you found yourself at odds with your friends. Maybe you're having to make some big decisions at work based on what your employer wants you to affirm but what you can actually affirm according to God's word. Maybe you have a family member who doesn't believe, and that's making life very difficult. And we know that there are people today out there who are facing the risk of personal injury, uh, imprisonment, and even death 
for their faith. And the Scriptures has a name for situations when godly people encounter conflict because of their commitment to Christ. We call those trials, and they are not fun. Trials have been the norm for the people of God since the fall. Cain murdered his brother Abel because his sacrifice was righteous. Noah was derided for preaching and then for building the ark. Moses faced dramatic murmuring and uh, anger and, and trouble from the Israelites, even as he was trying to deliver them out of Egypt. And then, of course, there's Job, whose trials were because he was righteous in spite of what his friends were trying to tell him. And then no man in history of the world has suffered more than our Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews 5, 7 through 9 says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience uh, through what he suffered. So even our Lord was not exempt from the suffering, the hardship, and the pain that comes from being human. And so this fall, as we continue to proceed through the book of James, what I want to do is to consider these different sections uh, in light of heavenly wisdom and worldly wisdom. And this week we're going to start at the beginning and we're going to look at how James applies wisdom from above to trials. How ought we to think about trials? Now I'm going to read, let's, uh, I'm going to read and you can read along in your Bible. Um, I'm going to read verses 2 through 12. Now we're actually only going to cover uh, 2, 3, and 4, and that will be plenty, as you'll see. Uh, but I'll read verses 2 through 12 this morning as we sort of set out this section about trials in the beginning part of James here. Uh, verse 2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing." If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. From a certain perspective, what James is saying here is very difficult. I know that. And, and I know that some of you, when you hear this, maybe you're hearing this for the first time, maybe you're hearing this for the first time in a while, maybe it, the, the concept of trials is particularly difficult for you to think of. Perhaps you even recoil from this idea that we would have joy in trials. And let me assure you, I am going to preach this passage. As a matter of fact, we're going to dissect this passage a little more carefully this morning because of the subject matter. But please hear me. It is not my goal to beat you over the head with this passage. I recognize that I struggle to see trials as joyful. I need more of this perspective. We all need more 
of this perspective. So I'm going to try to handle this passage this morning as James said it. We're going to walk down through it a little more intricately than we normally do, and then at the end I'm going to draw some conclusions that I think will be helpful for us as we consider trials from God's perspective. The context is important. We talked last week. James writes this epistle to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. He says that in verse 1. Remember, these are Jewish believers who have had to leave their homes due to persecution. Jewish Christians who had to leave Jerusalem about the time of the persecution of Stephen. When Stephen was martyred in Acts chapter 8 there, it says, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So the persecution and the death of Stephen forces Jewish Christians to scatter. These are the people that James is writing to, and they've given up everything because they are following Jesus. And remember, James is their pastor in Jerusalem. So if you're tempted to say, James, you don't understand what I'm going through, To which I would simply ask you, have you lost your job because of your faith? Has your family rejected you because you've believed in Jesus? Has your life been at stake because of your commitment to the gospel? Have you been forced to leave your home because you refused to announce, to to renounce him? And I I would just say, beloved, uh, hear me, I am not minimizing your trials. I am not asking you to put on a happy face and pretend like everything is fine. I am just asking you to consider this perspective, James' perspective, from the perspective of heavenly wisdom. So as good students of God's Word this morning, uh, we want to make sure we understand the text. So I've got three simple words for my outline this morning. And uh, it it comes out nicely to just verse 2, verse 3, and verse 4. How do we approach trials with heavenly wisdom? With evaluation, with conviction, and with expectation. Evaluation, verse 1, 2 rather, conviction, verse 3, and expectation. So let's look at heavenly wisdom approaching trials with evaluation. So just as we've sung for the last two weeks, hopefully it's starting to get in your head. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kind. All right, so all these words are important, okay? So just bear with me. Let's look at the words that James is saying here. First of all, he says count, and this word count here is a command, all right? So he's not making a suggestion. He's not saying it would be better if he's actually saying it's it's the imperative for you grammar students. Brothers and sisters, count it joy when you encounter various trials. And this is why I place this under the heading of evaluate. James is saying when trials come upon you, and they will, you should stop and remind yourself to consider this all joy evaluate the situation. Okay, I see a trial coming. I am commanded to think of the joy that might be present here. So these words translated all joy. Interestingly, again, grammar nerds, all joy is at the beginning of this verse in the Greek. James says it, with all joy, consider your trials. Whole joy, complete joy, This is one of those places where it's like, okay, we're just going to dissect this, and we're going to see, does James really say what it sounds like he's saying here? The answer is yes. And I have sat with many people who have said to me, how can I possibly have joy in these circumstances? And it probably isn't the time when someone has just been diagnosed with a terminal disease or when somebody has lost a loved one 
to say, no, you should have all joy. But it's worth keeping in mind. And what we're doing is we're learning these things, as we're going to talk about, so that we can have these understandings as we have trials in our lives. James says what he says. And he reflects what the Apostle Paul says in other places. The Apostle Paul makes statements like, I rejoice in my sufferings. He commands the Romans, rejoice in hope, be patient in sufferings, be constant in prayer. He says to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians, we are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. And so clearly Paul and James and even Jesus believed that it was possible for these two seemingly conflicting emotions, sorrow and rejoicing, to exist at the same time. The word joy, by the way, is karan. It's a version of the word charis, which means grace. It's the same root. And there is no greater reason for joy than God's grace. And so just at a very high level, I would like for you to consider that no matter what, we Christians know that we have received more than we deserve the grace of God in the cross of Christ. Without grace, all trials end in destruction. With grace, they end in glory. If any of you ever read the novel Pollyanna, you ever seen the movie? It's been a while. Pollyanna is a cheerful orphan girl whose father was a minister and, and he died. And Pollyanna, she's known now for finding optimism, for finding the, the, a way to be glad in every circumstances. It's kind of a, a, her name has come to symbolize people who are foolishly optimistic. It's almost like a put down to say that somebody is Pollyanna-ish, but that's a mischaracterization. Pollyanna's optimism was taught to her by her father who found joy by counting 800 rejoicing texts in the Bible. And Pollyanna says, Father said if God took the trouble to tell us 800 times to be glad and rejoice, then he must want us to do that. So this isn't some narrow teaching. It's not like, you know, James has really just picked a scab here and he wants us all to bleed. It's all over the place. We saw in John 15 last spring, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that what? Your joy may be full. Psalm 16 says, in your presence, Lord, there is fullness of joy. So fullness of joy is available to us through Jesus Christ, which then causes us to turn to the inevitability of trials. James says, when, not if. And you can't ignore that little word when there. It's very important. Trials will come. They should be expected. They may come at any time. If you expected to live your life in Christ without trials, then you have ignored Paul's warning to Timothy where he says, all who desire to live godly will be persecuted. I would say that our commitment to faithfully applying the wisdom from above to our lives will lead to trials because those who are committed to selfish ambition will lash out against us. Sooner or later, the temple of the self will come up against the worship of Jesus Christ and we will be experiencing trials in that moment. He says, when you encounter, interestingly, this is the same word that is used. It's, it's, it could be translated fall upon, when trials fall upon you. This is the same word that is used when the Samaritan, uh, when the man is on the road and the Samaritan is going to find him, it says that the robbers fell upon him. So the idea here is that these are trials that just, they fall upon us unexpectedly, there's, and there's nothing we can do about them. 
They come out of nowhere. And then he says various trials. When you encounter various trials, many and varied trials, perhaps you're like me. Have you ever thought about trials you could endure? I've thought about that. Like, I could, I could handle that trial. I could, I could endure that. Like, you know, carrot and cauliflower shortage. I got that. I could handle that. I'd be okay. But then these trials come upon us, and we all think we're so strong, and we all think we're up for the challenge, and then God brings that one that we couldn't possibly have imagined, right? And there it is, and I'm not prepared for that. All of the major trials in my life, none of them have been like, I would like to go through that, please, Lord. Many and various trials. So James is exhorting his readers, in the midst of trials, stop and evaluate, count it, consider it joy. He wants us to think deeply and find joy in the midst of trials. Okay, so secondly, heavenly trial, heavenly wisdom approaches trials with conviction. He says, knowing that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, knowing, because you already know. And by the way, I think this is a key to understanding this passage. When the trial comes, James is speaking to believers who are suffering. They haven't been believers that long, some of them probably for eight or ten years since Jesus ascended, since Pentecost. But he is assuming that they have certain established convictions, knowing, knowing what? That the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So I always think about like Daniel, and I've told you this before, Daniel goes to Babylon, he gets taken off to Babylon, and he is the one who doesn't eat the king's meat, and he is the one, and him, his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they don't bow to the, the idol on the plain. And, and, you know, I think we have this thought sometimes where we're like, well, if I was in that situation, you know, I would just sort of pop in there, and I would become steadfast. And, and I think that is probably a, like, really, really simplistic view of what it means to approach trials. I personally believe that Daniel and others were men who were preparing themselves. They were filling themselves with God's Word so that if James was writing to Daniel, he would say, no, Daniel, you already know this. You already know this, that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Job, as his wife is saying, curse God and die, is able to say, though he slay me, I will hope in him. And that didn't just happen. Job was preparing himself. Paul says to the believers in Lystra in Acts 14, he was strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. How does Paul prepare the, the souls of the believers in Lystra he explains that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. So I would say this, brothers and sisters, if you are not in a trial right now, I would encourage you to get busy preparing for the trials that will inevitably come. And I'm going to talk about that in a minute. I have a bookshelf full of books written by Johnny Erickson Tata and, and others who have suffered and have written of their, their experiences and found help through the Word of God. And I'm going to talk in a few minutes about how we can read the Word of God and prepare ourselves so that when the trial comes, we can consider it all joy. Why? Because the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Peter says in Peter, 1 Peter 1.7, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, 
more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Your faith has proven itself genuine, and therefore Peter would say, in the midst of a trial, one reason that you can have joy is your faith is genuine, and that is more precious than gold. Genuine faith is a universally precious commodity. Are you investing in the genuineness of your faith? If so, you need to see that trials are going to be a part of that investment. And you know what? Some fall away. Some will fall away. There are people who profess faith, and it is not genuine. Jesus warned about that in Matthew 4. He says in in his parable of the seeds, he says, these are the ones who sown on rocky soil, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. They have no root in themselves, but endure for a while, and then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. Jesus would have us be on guard. Paul says things like, test yourself to see if you are in the faith. Genuine faith perseveres through trials. Let me offer you this encouragement, brothers and sisters. If you are here today and you have experienced trials and you have remained in the faith, you should count that joy because your faith is genuine. And and if if your trials have been anything like mine, you can look back and say, I don't know how I got got through that other than the grace of God. Your faith is genuine. Be joyful in that. And it produces steadfastness in you. You learn how to be steadfast in the midst of the trial. I do believe that faith is a muscle. I think it has to be worked out. I think it has to be exercised. Worldly wisdom focuses on getting out of the trial at all cost. I must get out of this trial. If I must sin, I must sin because I have to get out of this trial. Wisdom from above teaches us to bear up in the trial. And each time we do, it adds to the genuineness of our faith. All right, so here's what we know so far. Heavenly wisdom approaches trials with evaluation. So as you're in the middle of the trial, consider it joy. Evaluate the situation. And it it approaches trials with conviction. Here's something you already know. You know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And then finally, heavenly wisdom approaches trials with expectation. Let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So there's a, there's a chain of events here. James is saying, don't break the chain. Let the trial finish its work. Wisdom from above does not prioritize getting out of the trial. If your commitment is to getting out of trials no matter what, then if you have a financial trial, you are willing to go into debt, you are willing to cheat, you are willing to steal to get what you need. If it's a relationship crisis, you will fight and quarrel, you will burn bridges, you will get a divorce, you will ostracize loved ones, and in some cases, you will do harm to yourself and others in order to get out of the trial. Emotional crises will lead you to substances, legal and illegal, to get out of the trial. And these responses are the opposite of letting steadfastness have its full effect. Godly wisdom says, I'll wait. Psalm 27, 14, wait for the Lord. Be strong and courageous. Wait for the Lord. And I am not saying that you should stay in a trial any longer than you need to. If God gives you a way out, by all means, take it. If you can get out of the trial by loving God and loving your brother and your sister, then get out of the trial. But that is not the first concern of a person who has genuine faith. 
His concern is that God be honored and that people be loved even in the midst of the trial. And what is the full effect? That you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Over the last four years, I've mentioned many times, our goal here at Hope is very clear. We want Colossians 1.28, him reproclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. My prayer for this body is that this body of believers, that, that the elders of this church would be able, I don't even know what that's going to look like, but that at some point in the future we would be able to say, look, we did our best to, pursue, to present this body of believers mature in Christ. How is that going to happen? Partially through trials. And it's part of my job as your pastor to equip you to face those trials. And those trials will come. Parents, part of your job is to equip your children to face trials, and they will come. Many, tri- many parents try to shield their kids from trials. They hover and they intervene at the first difficulty. And I believe it's our responsibility. We should be, as, as, we're, as, as families, as we're experiencing trials, we should be bringing our children in. If it's, if it's financial difficulties or if it's relational difficulties or whatever difficulties it is, we should be, as we're able and as they're able to understand, bringing our children in on our prayers as we show them that they can see God working in us through trials. All right, so I've carefully explained what this passage means. And maybe you can quibble here or there with a little point, but I think it's pretty clear. James means what it sounds like he means. And I believe this is the Word of God. So how do we make sense of this? And I understand that some of you may respond by saying, things are difficult. I can't just snap my fingers and have joy. And so with the time remaining, I just want to think through some implications and some applications that arise from this text properly understood. How is it that somebody can be both sorrowful and joyful at the same time? Number one, I truly believe that we must saturate ourselves with the Word of God. And I think that this is where James says knowing. He says, as you already know. Jesus says over and over again in the Gospels, have you not read... There is an expectation among the writers of the Scripture that we know some of these things because we've invested time of them. What kind of person searches out 800 passages in which God commands us to be glad and rejoice? Only a person who is committed to finding wisdom from above when it comes to trials. You know, I often tell you that I read the Psalms every day. And I'm not just telling you that so you'll, like, know that's what I do. Like, I really, really would like it if you would all adopt that practice. I want you to saturate yourselves with the Psalms and have a deeper understanding of what James is saying when he says, knowing that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. As you read the Psalms, you will learn so many things that the people of God throughout all the generations have come to understood, to stand about God, about humanity, about trials. By the way, two psalms that speak specifically about trials are Psalm 37 and Psalm 73. They're reversible. I mean, if you get one of them, you can get the other. Psalm 73 is one of my favorites because Asaph, a godly man, is a man who is almost stumbled in the faith. He says, I looked around and I saw the wicked prospering and I I almost stumbled. And then he says in verses 16 and 17, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God 
and then I discerned therein. So, so Asaph's trial was that he looked around and he saw the wicked prospering and he didn't understand and he almost made a complete mess of things until he went into the temple of God and then he understood. And we do that by going to God's word. Verses 25 and 26, he says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. If you could write that on your heart, it would help you be able to rejoice in trials. That verse right there, Psalm 73, 25 and 26. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. In the Psalms, we are reminded over and over again that the Lord is good. Psalm 119, you are good and you do good. We should not trust in horses or chariots. We should trust in him. He alone is mighty. He alone is able to save. There are psalms for taunting enemies. If you, if you do your trip through the psalms every year, a couple of times, sooner or later you're going to get to Psalm 137. And the end of that one, there's, there's some enemy taunting in there that's got to be dealt with. They remind us that God is near even when he feels far off. There are psalms that remind us that he is for those who fear him. We can say with David in Psalm 69. In Psalm 69, verse 29, Jesus said, um, uh, David, David says, I am afflicted and in pain in verse 29. And then in verse 30, he says, I will praise the name of God with song and magnify him with thanksgiving. There is a way to do both. I'm always stunned by Psalm 94. Every time I get there, David says, when the cares of my heart are many, your consolations Cheer my soul when the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. So when James says, for you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, how do you know because your mind has been saturated with the word of God? And I would ask you, beloved, this morning, do you know, do you know that the steadfast, that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness? I would like to ask you to make the Psalms a regular part of your life. Um, I, I, I found Sons of Korah. I think they're Australian. They're on Spotify. They're trying to put all the Psalms to music, just like what we sang here this morning, Consider It All Joy, My Brothers. Uh, so, you know, I've, so far I've, I've found every Psalm I was interested in, and they just sing the Psalm. And I've, I've put that a, a playlist. We listen to that on the, school, on the way to school right now. Psalm, Psalm 139 is one of my favorites. And I'm just listening to it. We were talking in Sunday school earlier. When I hear songs sung of the scriptures, it just it gets it into me. Count it all joy, my brothers. I mean, it, it's there. It, it's helpful. And God has told us that it is possible to have fullness of joy in Him. So I want to encourage you to seek that. I, I do believe it is good and right to wake up every morning and, and set your heart in God's Word through the Word and prayer. And there are many days that I wake up and the cares of my heart feel overwhelming, and only when I immerse myself in God's perspective can I face the day. And I commend to you this practice. Turn off the, the, the game, turn off the news, turn off YouTube, please. Go to bed earlier, immerse yourself in God's Word, immerse your family in God's Word. Let it be fresh water to your soul so that when trials come, you can know that steadfastness will be produced by the testing of your faith. Secondly, we need to recognize that we are not as strong as we think we are. So here's the question. When have you felt the closest to God in your life? 
Has it been in times of peace and prosperity, or has it been in times of struggle and pain? And I have to say, for me, it has been almost entirely in times of struggle and pain. It is in those times when I am aware that I am acutely in need of God's help. And trials draw us closer to Christ because they show us that we need Him. Perhaps this is most clearly articulated in 2 Corinthians 12 with Paul's thorn in the flesh. So Paul is given this thorn in the flesh because he saw this dramatic vision of heaven that nobody else has probably ever seen. And in order to ensure that he doesn't boast, he's given this thorn in the flesh. And he says, when I am weak, then I am strong. And I would suggest to you that if you can say, when I am weak, then I am strong, then it will get you a long way down the road to being able to rejoice in trials. Because I can begin to recognize that trials actually do make me see my weakness. And that is good. James says, let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That is meaningless if you already think you are perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, right? Like, if that's your perspective, I know the trials have made me stronger. I, I, I was thinking this morning, there, there are two trials. I'm not going to tell you what they were, but I will tell you. There are two trials in particular, and in one of them, I had an overwhelming sense of the presence of God when the unimaginable came. And in the other one, it took me some time to say, God, where are you right now? And I know that both of those experiences were very important to me and the genuineness of my faith. And I had to get through both of them by clinging to Christ in a different way. And neither of them were pleasant. And I don't want to go through either of them again. But I am certainly thankful that I did. Trials are a gift because they cause us to cry out to God. We have so much. Relative to 2019, I know times are tougher, but we have food and we have shelter, we have clothing, we have so much. These are blessings and we should be thankful for those things. But I do think many of those things lead us to being convinced that we're stronger than we are and trials bring us back to reality, which leads me to point number three. We must be realistic about trials. We have to be realistic about trials. This world is under a curse. Let's just start at a high level. The world is under a curse. When Adam and Eve sinned, life became hard. There's pain. There's toil. People hate other people. Our bodies are getting older. We will all get sick and die if Jesus doesn't return. Trials are inevitable. And for centuries, the people of God have endured various trials. It was common to lose... I'm, I'm always amazed to read, read of, you know, the... The, the, the heroes of the faith of yesteryear and to read about them losing child after child after child and even their wives in childbirth. Life expectancy was lower. A bad crop meant no food. People lived in constant fear of invaders. We need to adjust our expectations because maybe we have so much and we think we are so strong that we have begun to live and act as if we are immune to trials. And so rather than seeing trials as inevitable and preparing for them, we're shocked by them. So here, here are two ways that I think many Christians today are unrealistic about trials. Number one, many of us truly believe that life will go smoothly and we will always have health and wealth. And that is not promised to us. And then secondly, life will be fair and people will be nice and treat me kindly and thoughtfully. But being immersed in God's Word, again, being immersed in God's Word teaches us that that is not a realistic 
perspective. Paul says to Timothy in in 1 Timothy, he says, Godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, we cannot take anything out of it. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. I think Paul is just saying, lower your expectations. If you've got food and clothing, consider yourself blessed. I remember when I was moving out to Los Angeles and uh, alone, and, you know, somebody told me, like, you know, just plan on living in a box, and then everything will seem better than that, you know? Lower, lower your expectations. If your joy comes from your health and your wealth, then you will be crushed by trials, because our joy must come from Jesus Christ, and when we have our joy there, the one who provides us with fullness of joy, then everything else will fall into perspective. And then finally, I was, I was thinking through these, these last points here as, as I was getting ready to preach, and I was like, ah, I kind of end this on a downer, but thankfully we have the Lord's Supper after this, so we'll, we'll move into number four, and then we'll, we'll think about some positive things. We should expect and prepare for, for persecution. So I, I do think that the application here for all the trials um, is, is that the real context, I should, let me say it like this, that there's application here for all of our trials, but the real context is trials that come because of persecution. James tells it like it is, and so does his big brother Jesus. Jesus says in Matthew 5, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven, for they, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. We need to prepare our hearts and the hearts of our loved ones to face persecution. And, and I would say if you're looking around at the world today and you're not expecting some persecution, you're probably keeping your head in the sand. The disciples who heard Jesus' words after he ascended were immediately faced with persecution. That We've talked about the persecution that resulted from Stephen's death and the scattering of the Jewish believers to whom G- James is writing. But do you remember the disciples' response? I've, I've read this in here a couple of times, Acts 5. And when they had called in the apostles, so the, the Jewish leaders called the apostles in, and they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they had been counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple, from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ, that the Christ is Jesus. I, 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 I would like us to be a church that maybe one day, if things get significantly difficult, that we would be a group of people who would get together and be like, I, I, I got to suffer for the name of Jesus. Let me tell you about it. I, I, was, I was honored to be able to suffer for the name of my Lord. Re- let's rejoice together. And, and that, 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 would be, that that would be a goal of ours. That we would recognize so clearly how great he is and how great his sacrifice has been on our behalf. That, that you know, what, whatever we need to endure, we are just, we are happy to be able to suffer for his sake. If we're going to do that, we've got to evaluate our trials. You've got to stop. You've got to think. Brothers and sisters, when trials come your way, you don't have to immediately react. You can stop. You can pray. You can evaluate. Consider it all joy, my brothers. Evaluate it. Have conviction. These are the things that I know. These are the things that I've learned. And then move forward with expectation. What is that expectation? That these trials are going to make me perfect and complete in Christ. They are a tool that he is using in my life. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. This is what God's word says. James will say next week. Maybe, maybe your response to this is, I don't have that kind of wisdom. 
James will say next week, if you need wisdom, you can ask for it, and God will give uh, freely and without reproach. Let me pray. Father, give us wisdom to understand these things. Please, 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 let us not be off-put by the teaching of your word. Father, may we be a people who find joy even in the hardest things of this life. God, give us grace. Give us grace to understand these things. Father, I pray that we would be a people who take our faith seriously and that when we are forced to suffer for your name, that we would rejoice that you have given us the opportunity. Father, would you raise up from among us children who will become men and women who will suffer well for the cause of Christ. And may we one day gather and rejoice in the name of our Savior, having completed the race and heard him say, well done, my good and faithful servant. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for that word.